It is my privilege to welcome each of you to church this morning and greet you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one to whom we sang those words. And uh, I'd like to welcome you each to church this morning, whether you're here in these pews or uh, gathered with us via live stream on uh, what is the third wet and dreary Sunday in a row. And uh, last week joked about maybe we're working credits up toward a pretty Easter. Well, we have to be uh, with the way that things are going now. And it, it's right about this time of year that uh, folks like me, and I don't know how many of folks like me exist on this planet, but we start writing down the first day of spring and checking off the days until we get there. That's the 20th of March. That's on a Saturday. And uh, I think that's about 31, 32, 34 days away. I'm not real good at math. But I am at, at wanting Easter and spring to be here. Uh, 34 days, I think. But we're glad you're here. And... Uh, we truly expect a good day in the Lord's house. But before we pray, uh, I need to share with you an important and an urgent prayer request regarding someone from our church family. And I'm thinking that most of you know of this by now. But if you do not, Gordon and Barbara Stevenson are members of our church family and they have been for a very long time. But this past week, Barbara suffered a major heart attack, and she is currently hospitalized and still persists in an unresponsive condition. And as time goes on, and having been in this case for several days now, um, Gordon and the family are even more so uh, in, a, in a spot where they're going to need to make tougher and tougher decisions. So at this point, it would not be an overstatement of the situation to say that we need to pray for a miracle. And uh, after a song like we just sang, and after our walk with the Lord as far as it's been, uh, we understand that we've got no one to turn to for something like this, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great physician, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So let's bow in prayer before we open in God's word for our study today and lift up our brother and sister in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for a, southern, a Sunday morning, another Sunday morning. Even the rain that you've given us, when it might look as if it might be too much. Lord, you're God over the rain. You're God over this earth. You made it. You hung the stars in the sky. You separated the ocean from the mountains. You filled the sea with fish and the air with birds. And you breathed life into man and woman. And even though your time lasts, Lord, our days are appointed. And right now we ask your loving, 
watch, care, protection, and comfort on a couple in the hospital while we're here in church. And Lord, would you please give them what they need right now if that's only to focus their gaze on your face and trust you to be Lord of what's left, long or short. We thank you for hope. We thank you for your word. We thank you for each other. And Lord, we thank you for grace. Speak to us through your word this morning and encourage us through each other. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, if you would join me in John's Gospel, chapter 18, that's where we find ourselves. And we pick up between the paragraphs as we studied last week. what was John's record of the first of the trial of Jesus after his arrest before Annas. And we looked at this last week. He skips between the scene outside the place where Jesus was being tried and the place where Jesus was being tried, inside and outside. What's going on inside is Jesus is being examined. What's going on outside is Jesus is being denied by Peter, one of his own disciples. So I thought I'd set this up by, by just helping us uh, to understand the, the human element of what's taking place here. With Peter's denial of Christ. That's our subject matter for today. And uh, I, I think it would boil down to just basic human development Uh, Very early in our lives, around about the time we're learning to walk and we're learning words and putting words together and forming sentences, learning to communicate with other human beings that we're taught how to respond to other human beings, how to treat them. Uh, We learn simple things like it's not good and correct to take things from other people. We give things to other people. Uh, We learn that it's not good to lie to one another. We learn that it's not good uh, to mistreat one another. And if we're Bible-believing and we understand our Bibles and believe that God uh, intends what's best for us, we learn things like treating others like we would want ourselves to be treated. And as we grow older and we learn that uh, even though those are the best of intentions, they don't always happen that way. And we learn our propensity, even our skill at doing precisely the opposite. And we would probably all agree at some point in life, maybe by the time we've uh, been through several years of middle school or high school, that to betray someone is probably the height of mistreatment. Of course, other than taking one's life from them. But in our interaction with others, uh, and, and we, could, we could kind of run the scale here. There would be a situation where, say, your best friend chooses not to choose you when picking teams for kickball. That would be on one end of it. And then maybe on the other end, maybe something like we just read where 
Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, betrays his Lord. And the implications of that as it shakes out results in his cruel, horrific death. Now somewhere between those, we've got what we're going to look at today as Peter's denial. Now we talk about betrayal and we talk about denial and we think that they're different things, but they're really basically the same thing just to a different degree. It's basically looking at someone who is important to you. Let's just use words like trust and loyalty and severing those things uh, for the most part to suit oneself. And I would think that even in a room like this, every last one of us has played both sides of this coin. We know what it's like, big or small, to be denied or to be betrayed. At the same time, we've also played the betrayer in some way or another, even though we might not know that we've done so. And if any of us need a refresher, every sermon deserves its own depravity check, doesn't it? To sin against one's creator is betrayal on a cosmic level. So if we believe this book, we're all in this together on the other side of Jesus as the perfect sin sacrifice on his way to the cross to pay for our sins, including our betrayal cosmically against God with our sins against his holiness. So that's basically the topic of discussion today on a human level having to do with betrayal. So let's read what we've got before us. We'll read it and then we'll pray and ask for help. But um, let's just back up to verse 12 to get a running start. This is John chapter 18. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now we get to verse 19. It goes back to the situation with Annas, Jesus inside. When we get to verse 25, John jumps back to the situation outside. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you? In the garden with him? 
Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. Let us have ears to hear it, and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for another passage out of your word from John's gospel. Lord, open our ears to it, open our eyes to it, open our heart to it, open our mind and our thinking to it. And Lord, may we understand what we're reading, and may we have the strength to obey it by your grace. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Well, all four gospel writers, we're reading out of one, John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all record what we're reading here, but from different perspectives. Uh, So... From John's perspective, that's what we're reading today. We may mention things from the other accounts just for reference, but our focus is with with John here. That's how we were meant to read it. Uh, We've got a lot going on here. John is switching between scenes, all for the purpose of focusing our attention in a specific place. We'll mention that by the time we're done. Jesus knows what's going to happen. We've already read this. And uh, that's in 18.4, where Jesus is inside the garden. Other places tell us he's praying with his disciples. And at the point where the small army comes to arrest him, Jesus walks out and gives himself up, John tells us, because he knew what would happen. Well, Jesus had also predicted that Peter would deny him. What we just read, Jesus told Peter, That's what you're going to do. Peter said, that's not what I'm going to do. But specifically, three times, deny him before the rooster crows, which is exactly what happened. Both of these demonstrate Jesus' complete control over what's happening. He's no victim. He turned himself in. He, by the way, he referred to these men and talked back and forth, secured the disciples' safety. They alone arrested him. He's in complete control. But at the same time, John is giving us a very dramatic front row seat as these things develop. Showing us the growing isolation of Jesus. He went with 11 men into the garden. He took three of them a little further. Then he walks out alone and now he's standing alone. And then the ones that he trusted most, we're going to watch deny him. It looks like one by one, the other writers said they scattered at that point. So this should heighten our awareness as readers of his suffering and his death. So he's in complete control, but a suffering servant. This is no small thing. Now, scholars are divided. I mentioned some of this last week. I think it's helpful for us as students to think through what we've got here and know where some people Come down in this interpretation and some in another. There are a couple of difficulties here. As far as the scholars, they're divided over at least two identities in these paragraphs. And we see them um, there in the first verse. We read verse 15. One of them has to do with the high priest. Who is the high priest and the courtyard? Where exactly is that? And basically, we, we settled that last week. It's most certainly Annas. And we talked about how it has everything to do with the way Rome had told them what to do, but that most of the Jews were not buying it. The real high priest was Annas. Even though technically, 
says Rome, it's Caiaphas. But by the time you get down, uh, well, first line there, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That's the other difficulty. The identity of this individual identified as only another disciple. So we'll spend a few minutes talking about who this guy is. Who is this another disciple? Traditionally, this person's identified with the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple would be John, who wrote this book. Uh, No less than five times, the author of this gospel refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. Now, the problem with this, we have to remember... Um, if you go back to John 1.1, 1, 1, it's not like all the books that Paul wrote where he put Paul first. And we know clearly what Paul wrote. Well, John doesn't tell us anywhere in the whole 21 chapters who wrote it. In fact, the author of this book seems quite uh, determined to make sure he doesn't mention that. And we have these little euphemistic sayings like the one that Jesus loved. And in this case, we've got another mystery figure, another disciple. So he does mention this disciple whom Jesus loved at least five times. And we've got tradition behind us. And when I say tradition, what do I mean by tradition? Well, the people who knew John, who studied under people that John taught... Well, we've got a line of succession, traditionally speaking, extra-biblically, that say that this is John that wrote this, and that that would be John, the son of Zebedee. John, the son of Zebedee, was one of the twelve, and one of the inner circle of the three with uh, Peter and James. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the other disciple, tradition tells us, it's all the same guy. So John wrote this book that we're reading. John is the one that Jesus loved. And John is the other disciple that we just read about. Now some would have problems with that. Especially right here in verse 15 of chapter 18. And most of the ones that disagree with it are contemporary scholars. And the reason why they disagree with this. Partly because the other disciple is not specifically called the beloved disciple. They say, well, why wouldn't he have said it if that's what he meant? Well, maybe because this is very sensitive information. He's got uh, one way he refers to himself without referring to himself. And then another way, when he really doesn't want to refer to himself, he doesn't refer to himself in a different way than he usually doesn't refer to himself. That's a possibility. But the commentators more so disagree with this Because they judge it unlikely that a fisherman from Galilee would have a backstage pass to the high priest's courtyard. That's what they just stumble over. So you're telling me the guy who fished all his life can walk right into the high priest's courtyard. The girl at the gate knows his face, lets him right in. And then after that, he goes back to get Peter because she doesn't recognize his face. He was a fisherman too. Come on. That's a far-fetched notion, wouldn't you say? I don't know. So what do we do? The modern guys say, maybe this isn't what the traditions always thought. question would be, do we have sufficient evidence to rule out the traditional understanding? 
Well, there's other things we could consider. Um, John has no problem dropping prominent names like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. He knew who they were. So he's not some uncultured (laughs) fisherman. He's fisherman, no doubt, but he seems to know some prominent names. And also the idea of the connection between Peter and John in the inner circle, connection between Peter and John at the end of this book, the massive connection between Peter and John at the beginning of the book of Acts through about midway through the book. These men have done a lot together. It makes sense that they're together now. So as Carson puts it, A modern prime minister may not be on first-name basis with the family of the neighborhood fishmonger, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen that way in ancient Israel. goes on to make the case that our modern stratification of income and class is much more developed than that stratification in this situation. Even the high priest is going to eat fish from a certain vendor in a certain area in a much smaller uh, population. So it's not that big of a stretch, especially if there's a family connection or two, which many scholars believe that this John was cousin with another John, the Baptist, who was cousin with Jesus of Nazareth, and that all together... One of them's father being a priest himself. It might not be such a long chain all the way back to the courtyard of the high priest at the moment. So, be that as it may, after all that, we're going to have to settle with whoever the other disciple is. Because we're not told. And we can't say... But he was not only able to walk into the high priest's courtyard without being questioned. He was able also to speak to the servant girl attending the gate and make sure Peter was admitted as well. Now, if you want to know what I think, which I put way down on the list of what we discussed today. I'm going to go with tradition. I think it just fits that uh, John, the revelator, John, the beloved, is John... Jewish man of mystery as well. Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now what happens next, when the servant girl speaks to Peter, can also be taken more than one way, depending on the way you look at what is said. Thinking our way through this will help us better understand Peter's situation he finds himself in. And both here and in Mark's gospel, it's the servant girl who confronts Peter for the first time. And the response is his first denial. Also seems that the other disciple, Yen, we think that's John, I think it's John, is present as an acknowledged follower of Jesus. Now, now if, if you're painting this picture in your mind, Jesus has been arrested. If you're watching this scene, it's in the dark. There's a full moon. It's likely a clear sky. But you can see those torches go down into the Kidron Valley and back up into the city and through the streets to the house of Caiaphas 
into the courtyard and into the building. You've got these men standing outside. And trying to understand what it might look like, all the others have scattered. You've got two followers of Jesus, one who's recognized and has complete freedom to enter the courtyard, and one who doesn't. The first question is, if this is a trial to put this man to death, then why is one of his followers, even if he's well known, given such free access? Answer that question is we don't know. So if the servant girl lets one in, and you would think that if she knows him well enough to know he's on the guest list, she would know him well enough to know he's been spending a lot of time with this name, man named Jesus. So what about Peter? Because seeing Peter come in with him, she's likely making the obvious connection and asking the obvious question. You're one of his disciples too, right? But the way she asks the question is in the form of the negative. You're not one of his disciples, are you? We don't know if there was a wink, wink that went along with it. We're not privy to such information. So, being a negative question, it almost expects a negative answer. Maybe more likely it's just a cautious assertion. Maybe she's putting him on guard. Maybe she's letting him know that she's on guard. It's hard to tell. And we've only got what we've been given. And from this context, it seems less hostile she doesn't ring the alarm, but it does seem to be some bit of a cautious assertion. Look at Peter, though. We've looked at John. Look at Peter. He's not as comfortable in the situation as John would be. John walked right in. You're never as comfortable when someone slams the gate in your face and says, Let's see your ID. <laughs> So he's vouched for and he gets in and then this question is asked. And you got to remember that Peter's different than John because Peter is haunted by the memory that he was the one that pulled the sword and cut off the man's ear in an attempt to take his life just less than an hour ago or so. And now he's standing in the presence of all those officials that he dodged again just an hour or so ago. So it's it's a tough place for Peter to be. The heat is much hotter for Peter than it is John or any of the rest of the people that are there. And this is where Peter begins his shameful descent. It was easy enough for Peter to make this first denial. It's just three words. And he may have simply looked at it as his first instance of Merely self-distancing himself from the Jesus that could get him into trouble. He seems to have slipped through thus far. And maybe he saw it as the necessary price of admission into the courtyard. You're going to have to say that if you want to get in. Which is what he did. And it's won him a place close to the fire with the other servants and officials. Not unlike one he just tried to kill. But now that it's done, we're going to see that it's easy to repeat. And each time with higher costs. 
Look at verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This is, this is interesting here. This is what those that uh, discuss the ability to prove the Bible by basis of eyewitness testimony. We love a verse like this because this suggests eyewitness recollection. It's not just a fire. It's a charcoal fire. I know there's plenty of guys in here who know there's a big difference, especially when you're cooking between a gas fire and a charcoal fire, right? People argue over stuff like that. I'd be one of them. One's the superior way to do it. The other is not. I'll leave it at that. But look here. Servants and officers made a charcoal fire. Why? Because it was cold. They're standing there warming themselves. Peter is there with him. John is going to use the same distinction in chapter 21 when Peter and Jesus are at a charcoal fire and they brought fish and they cook the fish there. This is the reference my father always liked to remind me of whenever I'd order up some sushi. He said Christ had the opportunity and he cooked it. So... Use that as a proof text at your own (laughs) discretion. Um, But just like John told us, look at this. That Judas was standing with the officers who arrested Jesus earlier. He makes that distinction. Judas was standing there with them. Now he has told us Peter has also standing with them. The officers are used in both instances. So that's probably the first indication that something has changed. Now there's a possibility that there could be danger in Judas walking up to the fire with the enemy. But at the same time, he might say that there'd be danger in not doing that. Hey, I don't want to stick out. So things have gotten a little weird for him now that he finds himself in the situation where he's in. And at the conclusion, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But after stepping away at verse 18, to go back to the hearing before Annas, John takes us back, after a meanwhile, to the fire in verse 25. So we're going to skip over that. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Picks up right where he left off. So they, that's plural, said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So same question. Different uh, questioners, same response, same three words. And like we talked about last week, the reason for John jumping back and forth between what's going on, on inside and what's going on outside, he's building a dramatic contrast between Jesus standing up to his questioners And denying nothing. And Peter outside. Breaking down. Against his questioners. And denying everything. That's supposed to be the dramatic contrast. Where to pick up on here. So let that color everything that you see from here on. 
Verse 25 records the second denial where they ask the same question as before, along with the you also part. That's strange. You also? Who's the also? The other disciple. He doesn't seem to be a problem. And nobody seems to get the handcuffs out when Peter starts cursing, saying that he's not the guy they think he is. So it's kind of strange. It's like they know they've got the one they want and they're not worried about these other guys. Peter answers, as before, I am not. Same three words. And then quickly, in this narrative, if you're reading John, you go from the second denial straight into the third denial in the very next verse. Though Luke would tell us it was about an hour later. And Matthew tells us the questioners noticed Peter's Galilean accent. So evidently they'd been doing some talking other than those words, I am not. I don't know, maybe you can pick up on a Galilean accent with three words said twice. Hard to say. Mark tells us that the rooster crowed a second time. Right? Jesus never told us how many times the rooster had to crow, but... According to Mark, it had crowed before and then it crows a second time on the third denial. John is the only one to tell us that it was the relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off that is asking specifically for the third time, are you one of his disciples? The reason why I bring all that up is because it helps us with something. All four Gospels write about this. And you could take all four Gospels and lay them together and you're going to find nuanced differences between accounts. Some add things that others omit. And sometimes it seems confusing. Now wait just a second. Was it a rooster crow or a rooster crowing? There are other places in Scripture like this. There's a situation where uh, in one of the Gospels there seems to be two demon-possessed men at Gadara. Where in another situation it seems like there's only one. And... Uh, you want to know, am I reading this correctly? Is this right? Well, the only time that we've got a bona fide discrepancy is when one account cannot account with the other. It'd be impossible. You could use all types of ways to describe this. Is there a pulpit at Wake Chapel? Yes. Is there two pulpits at Wake Chapel? Yes. Are either one of those statements incorrect? No. So it could be that one of the demon-possessed men got them right on the shore after the, the storm. The other one they found out about later, and two out of them were so scared, that's all they remembered. They don't remember the second guy. What we have here is just... Like any time you've ever watched a court scene with multiple witnesses, they all look at it a little different, even though they were all looking at the same thing, as far as that can be established. So what do we do with the way that John's telling the story? Because he's telling the story specifically to make us think and understand certain things where the others, that's not their objective. He's teaching by the way he tells us this. So when you look at verse 26, of the servants of the high priest, or one of them, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And John just simply tells us Peter again denied it, as if to say, repeat the last three words that have been said twice already. 
Peter's being very, what should I say here, uh, frugal with his words, isn't he? He would have known Peter used swearing. Mark's the only one that tells us that. And Mark got his information from Peter. He could have left that out. But think about this. Why is John being so frugal here? Luke would be the one to tell us the heartbreaking detail that it was at this precise moment that Peter's eyes met Jesus as he's crossing the courtyard on his way to Caiaphas. When the rooster crows. Very dramatic the way John says. And at that point, the rooster crows. At once, a rooster crowed. John makes no mention of the oaths and curses, nor does he mention bitter tears following the rooster's crow. He also is the only one to tell the story of Peter's restoration. Good chunk of the last chapter. Nobody else gives us that. John does. So it's got to be that the effect here is to dramatize the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter. And the way he does it, he's not distracting us with the way Peter's acting. He's not distracting us with the way Peter acts after it's over. He just wants us to hear this, I am not, I am not, I am not. Rooster crows, Jesus told him that would happen. As if to burn into his mind, there's something you're up against here that you cannot overcome. You will never follow me until I finish it on the cross. It's an impossibility. I've foretold it. You didn't believe it. But now you should. So it seems clear, and this is the so what, I believe, of the way Peter has told this story that others have told. But according to his record, I think it's clear that John has not brought Peter into the story at this point, as so many might want to say, to hold up some negative example of the foolishness of putting confidence in yourself and the failure that is sure to follow. Of course, we learn that here. It's not that it's not here, but I don't think that's the main reason. I think the main reason is this. John brings this part of the story alongside the arrest and trial of Jesus, who denied nothing. Peter denied everything. Put these two close together so we see them as contrast to show us that Jesus, very much alone, on a road that no one can keep him from because he's being obedient to the work that the Father gave him, drinking the cup that the Father has given him. And then the other is Peter, who can't follow him on that road if his life depended on it. And his attempt to do so only plunges him into denial. And on top of it all, Jesus told him it would happen. And anyone who's ever been able to identify their own self-work in maintaining a Christian existence knows that it's an impossibility. It, It can't work. It won't work. It'll never work. There's a missing ingredient. It's an alien righteousness, which is not our own. 
I want to show you. And this is John's literary genius, I believe. If you look back in chapter 18, and we're looking at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. If you see in verse 5, actually the end of verse 4, Whom do you seek? That's Jesus. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them, you know, like Peter was standing with them. Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He answered, I told you that I am he. And then you fast forward to this other situation. And we've got John being very frugal again. Only using the words he wants us to read. Though it's a grand simplification. He's got Peter saying, I am not. I believe that's supposed to be meant as a contrast. So you've got Jesus who infuriates the Pharisees the first time he said, I am. Because everybody knows that's what God told Abraham, or excuse me, Moses, at the burning bush. That's how I reveal myself to you. I am. And then Peter, in his humanity, the best of what he's got, can only muster um, an I am not. And apart from the cross, that's the discrepancy of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And apart from the cross, it that gulf will never be spanned. John's showing us this, I think, in glaring images. We serve the great I am, and every last one of us are a sure I am not. Now, let me give you some points in conclusion. This is a what's in this for me, and these are just observations from what we've looked at that might help color up or help us focus on that so what that Jesus is I am and we are not number one it's never wise to warm yourself at a fire built by the enemy no matter how cold you are because it's always a dangerous place to be and things always get easier the longer you stay. Easier to, to do wrong, that is. You call it a slippery slope or whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't matter if you're a child in the booster seat at home or one of our uh, older members having... Just about all of the experience life may provide. It's all the same. Uh, you want to stay away from that type of a situation. And especially in transitional parts of our, our development. By the time you leave your parents' home, stand out on your own two feet, find yourself in a group of people you didn't grow up with, maybe real smart ones at a university, be careful of their fire, even if you're cold. 
it's easy enough to pray, pay that price of admission by just ignoring who you are supposed to be. And it doesn't get any easier from there. Number two, Peter's response to his failure, which is what happened at the enemy's fire, was exactly the opposite of that of Judas. Now remember, we said that Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial are not that different. Even though the consequences, the, the buy-in, the costs are, are hugely different. Judas went out and hung himself. Spiraled into despair. But Peter returned to Jesus afterward. Got a whole chapter about that. Please remember, this is not Peter's final scene in the book of John. And then the second season in Acts is even better. But what this gives us is hope for all of us. You can turn around. You don't have to eat the pods that you're supposed to feed the pigs. You can come home. And that's the third point. As serious as was Peter's disowning of Jesus, so is the wonder of God's grace to forgive and restore him. Don't get caught up with how bad Peter dropped the ball. If you want to, if, if your jaw should drop, it's not at Peter. It's at God's grace to put him back together. He denied him, what, three times? Jesus is going to ask him three times if he loves him. What was torn down in three steps is built back. And what he says to him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You know, the last thing Peter says, I'm going back fishing. He thinks he's ruined everything. Everything that was of any worth to him, he's, he's destroyed. And the only man that ever cared for him is gone. And he can't fix what was broken before he left. But basically what Jesus is saying to this man who thinks he's washed up, as anyone had ever been washed up, is basically, uh, Peter, let's get back to work. Feed my sheep. That's what I've been doing with you. That's what you'll do with others. Let's get back to work. He's restored. We've got a lot to look forward to in the chapters to come. But I think that's enough for us today. And uh, let's close this with, with prayer. And then uh, David will take my place and we'll sing a benediction. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for a story told from the perspective of an eyewitness whom we believe to be the one that you loved. Lord, that could be said about any of your disciples. And it's because of your love that your Father gave you to be offered up in our place. Lord, help us to keep a circumspect watch on our lives. Help us to learn from Peter's mistakes. 
But Lord, help us to understand our mistakes by the work of the cross that broke their power to separate us from you forever. Thank you for being the I am. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for dying in our place. Lord, may we behold our God in a passage like this. And Lord, by your grace, may we become what we behold. We ask all this in your name. Amen.